There is something that's powerful about momentum. It's a powerful thing. It's a beautiful thing when everything's going your way. Last week I mentioned the Mariners might just run away with the American League West as they were 2-0, and they haven't won since. So sometimes it can be a negative thing as well. Uh, but momentum matters. Um, if you're a college basketball fan, ask UConn fans if momentum matters. They won I don't know how many games in a row to win the title. And if you're a Lakers fan, then you want some... Oh, there's at least one. Um, you, want, uh, you want momentum heading into the playoffs, right? Um, and it's not just sports. You see it in business or politics or whatever that when things are going well, you expect the arc to keep rising. You expect everything to be going the way you want it. Over the last few months, we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke And over the last few weeks, in particular, we've been looking at Jesus' approach to the cross during the Passion Week, which begins next Sunday with Palm Sunday. And we've kind of been hitting the highlights over the last few weeks and getting kind of the general movement towards Jerusalem. And today, we're going to go to look at the passage that leads right up to the triumphal entry, leads right up to Palm Sunday. And so, in most cases, and so we're building that momentum towards Easter now, in most cases we think momentum is a good thing, but sometimes it's leading us the wrong way and it needs to be stopped. You know, like if you are, um, your car's going off a cliff, you want to stop that momentum. Basic, right? So go ahead and turn your Bibles because we're going to see Jesus have to do that a little bit. Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. If you are a guest with us this morning and you, or, or you just forgot your Bible, raise your hand and the uh, ushers would be happy to... Uh, to bring one to you and just leave it on your seat when you leave. And if you don't own a Bible, we encourage you to go to the Information Center. We have one for you. We'd be thrilled to give one to you um, that you can read. Now, leading up to our passage today, we see a bunch of, of really this ragamuffin group of outcasts that Jesus has been gathering. He's, he's cleansing lepers. He is healing blind men. He is declaring the worst off of society, basically tax collectors, as sons of Abraham. And his works are such that no one really can say much. And he has a tremendous amount of momentum building as they're heading to Jerusalem. And he's like a politician that's riding this wave of popularity. And Jesus' installation as the king of the kingdom he's been proclaiming looks like it's imminent. Looks like it can happen any time. So that's what, as if momentum were speaking, it would be saying, hey, it's time. And so, I mean, and we see that in our passage. Look at um, chapter 11, or verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them, this is, that was, this is the, all the stuff with Zacchaeus. He went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. That's a big statement there, that the kingdom of God would appear at once. That's evoking the emotions that you, when your team is going to win the Super Bowl and the last seconds are clicking off. It's this expectation that the kingdom is it's going to happen. Because the expectation, at that, the Jewish expectation was that the kingdom would be this earthly kingdom with Jerusalem at the center and the opponents are smashed and Yahweh is worshipped centrally and everyone thinks Jesus is ushering this in right now. That's what they're anticipating. Now we know enough about the story. We've heard it a million times or several times and we know that this isn't going to be the time of triumph. It's going to be the time of suffering that Jesus is entering into. But we have the privilege of history. They didn't, do, they didn't understand this, and so Jesus needed to give them a story, a parable, to help them decipher what's going to happen from here. Um, and, and then understand what to do, since the kingdom of God isn't coming, at least the way they expected, in its fullness at that point in time. But just because we have the privilege of history doesn't mean we don't have much to learn about how 
God works. And so our central thought today is when we surrender our expectations of God, that's what we're going to look at, when we, when we surrender our expectations of God, he will be sure to surprise us. Jesus is going to make them surrender their expectations. And when we do, we can be sure to be surprised. Our series is Reach for Jesus. Today is Reach for Jesus and Surrender Your Expectations. And like I mentioned before, Jesus is going to tell a parable, and he's going to introduce a storyline where he's going away. They're excited about Jesus going to Jerusalem to be the king. Now, here's something that will help us understand this parable a little better, is that Israel was what was called a vassal state. So if they decided, that, hey, we want this guy, they had an election, and chose this guy as king, that wasn't going to fly. Rome would smash them. So what they did is you had to go to, to Rome. You had to ask Caesar, hey, this guy, or I want to be king, may I have your permission to be king? Is that, that's the situation of this, this parable here. Israel couldn't crown their own king. So that's the background here. Verse 12, he said, Jesus said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. That's what they had to do. They had to go to Rome, be appointed king, and then return. So he's laying out what's going to happen here, though. They think he's on the doorstep of Jerusalem and kingdom is now, and he's saying, no, I need to go somewhere and be recognized as king and then return. That there's going to be a delay in this. This isn't going to happen the way you guys think. You need to lay down your expectations for a minute. He needs to go away to receive his kingship, not go right to Jerusalem. This immediacy that they were anticipating, Jesus is saying, you've got to hold off on that. And then think of how the Jesus story rolls out. Instead of being crowned king in Jerusalem, we know the story that Jesus is crucified, that he raises from the grave and he ascends to the Father's right hand. We see this encapsulated in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, and 32 to 36. You can read everything in between on your own, um, but could you throw that up on the, the, sign there, or the screen there, Sam? Men of Israel, this is Peter preaching. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. All that to say, what he's gone through, he has been crowned as the king. And he is the Lord of all. And by the death of Jesus that will come soon in the story, <coughs> excuse me, it was a lot worse last service. I'll try to keep it together, together this service. Um, but the death of Jesus would have crushed the credibility of Jesus as king for everyone. Kings weren't crucified. Cursed people were. But God raises him from the dead, so now he is the exalted one who is greater than death. And so he's not just the king of Israel, he's the king of life. <coughs> Excuse me. Starting way earlier than last service. Okay. <laughs> oh, thank you. Candy, that's good. <coughs> Thank you, Ramona. Okay, so um, 
So this here that we're looking at is the language of a king in waiting. Authority's been established. He's been risen. He is at the right hand of the Father. And now we're in this place where we are awaiting his return, where everyone will recognize him as king. So now this, this first verse here would have made sense culturally. It would have made sense um, <coughs> in terms of how it fit, but it wouldn't have made sense in terms of the plans Jesus' followers had for him. And that's the overall emphasis of this parable is, wait, you guys don't quite got it right. Let me explain to you how it works. And remember, our central thought is when we surrender our expectations to God, we can expect him to surprise us. So Jesus is risen. We're awaiting his his return. So what are some of these surprises we can expect? Well, the first surprise we can expect is that we can be surprised with responsibility. We can be surprised with responsibility. Um, We go back to the parable. The nobleman goes away, but as he goes away, he gives responsibility to his servants. He says in verse 13, So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Put the money to work means turn a profit. These guys have work to do. And when we think of servants, just a real quick aside here, when we think of servants, we maybe think of people doing domestic work like Mr. Belvedere or Rosie from the Jetsons or something like that. There were plenty of of mundane things they would do and and even some degrading things. It wasn't a, 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 a... privileged life by any means, but some servants and some slaves would actually be tutors to future kings. They were philosophers, they were things like that. They, were, they uh, would even manage the master's household like he's asking them to do in his absence. So um, this isn't as odd as it sounds to our ears. And we've heard this kind of parable before, so this doesn't surprise us as well, but we need to dwell on this reality that the king's gone away and he's given us work to do. I mean, it's not a surprise because we've heard it a million times, or we've heard it enough. Um, But the reality is there's more efficient ways for God to get stuff done than to use you and me, right? I mean, most we're we're American. I'm not Mike, but most of us. (laughs) No, but, um, you know, we love efficiency. We love love, um, efficiency. We love practicality. And God has chosen a very impractical and inefficient way to do his work in the world. He's chosen to use us. We need to let that settle in. That's pretty significant that God has given us responsibility. That's amazing. And, and there's, there's several ways this responsibility plays out. Um, there's a responsibility that God gave us as human beings when we were created. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This, this dominion language, this ruling over, filling the earth and subduing it, um, it's about making something of the world God's given us. He's given us a creation and he wants us to do something with it. Theologians call it the cultural mandate. The idea is that God created us in his image as a creator to take his creation and do something useful with it. Um, That means you're given responsibility to glorify God in all the different spheres in which you exist. It's not just what you do at church. It's what you do at work. It's what you do at home. It's what you do in your hobbies, all that kind of stuff there. Those are places where God wants you to reflect his goodness, even if they aren't specifically Christian places, because you're there, and he wants you to extend his goodness to where you are. The king has given you resources so that you can do that. He's given you resources to serve your family and make it a better place for his glory, to to make it a more Christ-centered home. 
And maybe at those reunions where maybe your family's the only Christians, maybe he's called you to be a peacemaker because God is a peacemaker in those situations. Or maybe they're all Christians and it's still crazy. Doesn't matter. You've been placed there to represent Christ and do good in that context. It may be expanding the borders of your family, bringing in foster children or adopting. Those are heroic folks who have decided to create a culture where they reflect God's heart by bringing others in to their home. As God adopts us as children, they pursue that as well. See, the king's given you resources, and you need to use them in your home. The king's given you resources so you can serve in your workplace. You're supposed to make a profit for God in this text, maybe while you're making a profit for your employer, but hopefully also doing good for the community as well. And this may mean working hard, not just for your paycheck, but because your work makes the world better by bringing a valuable product to your community. It may mean bringing some responsibility to a cutthroat organization by helping them find a purpose greater than the bottom line. Maybe it's starting a business to help people find some jobs. What a blessing that is in this cultural climate we have today. See, one of the things we do is we overlook some places where we spend a lot of time in our homes, work, maybe the different hobbies we do, whatnot, thinking that God isn't terribly concerned about that. But remember, he's the king of everything. He's the king of creation, and certainly he cares about those places where you spend most of your time. And it's not just what we do at church. We're stewards. We've been given a gift, and we need to embrace it and use the gift he's given us. Even if he wants us to work beyond the church, he still wants us to work in the church. He says he gives us spiritual gifts. If you read 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 or Romans 12, if you want to do some more studying on your own for some of the Apostle Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts, But you've been given a talent, you've been given a mina, you've been given a gift to use for God's people. And there's some people in the church who are working far beyond their gifting because there's just so much to do and they have a heart to see it get done. But it's also because some people aren't using their gift. Some people are squandering it, some people are just sitting on it and waiting for I don't know what to be moving and start using what God's given them. And maybe you don't know what your spiritual gift is and you feel paralyzed by the lack of knowledge and... The early church didn't have any spiritual gifts classes, and they did okay. I mean, they're they're great, and I'm glad we have those, but it might be that you just need to do something. You just need to start moving and let God steer a, a moving person rather than one that is stationary. Hop in somewhere, serve, try it for a while, see if it works. If not, try something else. We still need help with parking ministry and greeting and and the welcoming ministry, simple work that is vitally important to helping people connect with Christ. Uh, Half of Danny's youth staff's going somewhere this summer, right, Danny? I mean, like, they've got people going to Ecuador for the summer. They're going to Hume for the summer. Student ministries needs help always. Kids always need workers. Labor-intensive. VBS is coming. It's crazy the amount of work that goes into that. They need help. Creativity during Easter week is all over the place around here. And so um, starting between Palm and and Easter Sunday, we're going to have like four or five services and the chairs are going to be different a lot. They're going to be moving things around for the different things we're doing. And right now, Marcos is doing all of it and he needs help. Maybe you don't know what to do, but you've got time. Come move chairs with Marcos. It doesn't have to be some earth-shattering thing, but God's given you a gift. It might just be a strong back in time. Give it to him. Let him use it. There are tons more. Tell us what you, like, what you like to do. We'll help you figure out how to deploy that gifting. And that's just the stuff inside the church. Easter's coming. There's a great opportunity to get the word out. And we have invitations for you. They're out on the tables outside at the info center as well. Um, we have door hangers for your neighborhood and also for the neighborhoods right here around the church. 
Go to the info center. Get, up, get um, a map and get those door hangers out to people who need to hear the gospel during Easter. The city has called us said, hey, we need help on an Easter egg hunt. We don't do our own Easter egg hunt because the city does one. Let's go be part of that. They've asked us to have a presence during their Easter event. Go to the info center, sign up. It's a couple hours on April 23rd, and what an opportunity for us to be present in, in, in the community. Those are opportunities where God's given us a gift, and we need to use it. So step into that, sign up for that stuff today if that's where God's leading you. God has gifted you to use your gifts for the benefit of our culture, but also for the benefit of the church. And so we're stewards of that gift, and we need to embrace it. So the king has been declared just and worthy to rule with the resurrection. And now we're all waiting for his return, and we've got some work to do in the meantime. We've been said, hey, here's your gift. Turn a profit. Get to work. And as far as the parable goes in its correlation to reality, this is pretty much where we are in the story. There's one more detail to touch on. The nobleman, he's going to a far-off land to receive his kingship, and there are some people who aren't happy about it. Look at verse 14. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now, it's important to clarify, subjects are not servants. They're citizens who would be under his authority as king. And something like this actually happened. There's a bunch of Herods, but one of them died, and his son, who was a particularly nasty Herod, um, was going to be king. And so the Jewish people at the time sent a delegation of 50 people to Rome, said, we don't want this guy as king. And Caesar said, yeah, he is pretty bad. By Caesar's standards, that's significant. And so he says, okay, well, we're going to, Archelaus was his name, you're not going to be a king, you're going to be an ethnarch, and if you behave yourself, we'll call you a king. He didn't, um, he he was deposed down the line. But that's the kind of picture. You could send a delegation saying, hey, we don't want this guy. And that's that's the picture of what's happening here. Now, we need to be careful with parables because we don't want to push on the details too closely because they don't always match up, but we want to communicate the idea of what's going on. So that's the backstory to that. But the point here is that the nobleman who will go away, Jesus, has his detractors. <clears throat> He's not wicked like Archelaus. That's where we push the details too far. But Jesus has his detractors. And it seems almost, when I was studying this, I'm like, where did this come from? I mean, we're here talking about that we've been given a gift and we're supposed to use it, and then all of a sudden these guys come out of nowhere. It, it, and it, I, doesn't, it, I didn't see how it was essential to the storyline, but here's the thing of how it affects the story and also to us is that not everybody's happy with Jesus. Have you noticed that? Not everyone likes him. He's the king with authority, but not everyone wants to recognize his authority. And we're going to get back to these guys in a while, but the point for now is that these people have no bearing on whether or how they're supposed to use their gifts. That they live in a world where not everyone is thrilled with the king. And we live in a world where not everyone is thrilled with the king, and yet, he says, here is your gift, here is your mina, here is what I have given you to use and go make a prophet. Who cares what the context of where you are is? We live, work, and play among those who don't know Jesus, and our responsibility is the same. He's given us something to use for his glory and for the common good, and we need to do that. We are expected to turn a prophet in the, in the terms of this text. Now, before we keep going, this is where we are in the timeline of history. The rest of the parable now looks forward to the return of the king, um, which we're looking forward to as well for Jesus' return. So let's go to that, verse 15. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. 
So this leads to our next surprise. As we put away our expectations, we'll be surprised with more responsibility. Verses 16 to 19, we'll be surprised with more responsibility. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Think about what just happened there. These were servants who were given a couple months' wage to go make money with. They did it. And now they're in charge of multiple cities. They've turned into regional leaders with just given a couple months' allowance to go work with. See, here's the point. What we do now matters for eternity. At least should. We want it to pass that test. I mean, how many of you think this is what heaven's like? I'm going to throw that up there. Anyone feel like that? You talk about heaven, and it's like, I don't know what I'm going to do there. That's going to be boring. I mean, I can only sing, I can sing of your love forever. I can't do it forever, you know? Like, that's, that's kind of the, the, we get that sense of, what are we going to do there? Well, this is one of those things where we need to lay down our expectations and be surprised. Jesus says, store up your treasures in heaven. And he's talking about investing in, in God's priorities that will result in eternal blessings. But it's not an earning thing, but it's as we give and we serve faithfully, here and now we're being molded into someone who can, has an expanded capacity for enjoying the things of God in the new heavens and the new earth. And we don't have time to get into all of this. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating stuff I just dipped my toe into this week in terms of studying. But, but when God sets things right, and he finally rules for all to see, we're not going to be hanging out on a cloud. We're going to be busy. And, and, and some of that has to do with how we live in the here and now. It, it won't be like that. One of the things, Revelation chapter 5, verses 9, it says we, says we will rule with Christ in eternity. Go ahead and throw that next slide up there. Nope. There we go. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Because we're talking about the new heavens and the new earth. We also need to remember that the new creation is going to recall all that God intended their created world to be. So we're not going to be sitting on clouds bored with harps. We're going to be working. We're going to be creating. We're going to be worshiping um, with our lives for eternity. I mean, if if we think we have responsibility now, it's going to expand exponentially in eternity because we're going back to that mandate that we were called to in Genesis to make something of this world. Just finished a book by Andy Crouch called Culture Making, and it challenges us to be culture makers. A lot of what I was talking about earlier with work and home in particular. But he thinks of eternity because it's filled with, with life and beauty, not just clouds and harps, as being filled with those moments where you experience God's grace in doing what you were created to do. Whatever that is for you, when you think, it doesn't get better than this. This is what I was made for. That's what heaven's like. And, and to a certain degree, that's what heaven's... I don't know exactly what we'll be doing there, but we will be doing those things that create and evoke those emotions and feelings in us. And that's worship on the highest level when you are doing exactly what you were made to do. Heaven will not be boring. It's not going to be one long vacation either. Vacation's nice, but it's the eternity of those moments where you are creating and you are doing something meaningful. And you know this is it. This is what I was made for, but you're doing that all the time. And you're more alive than ever when you do that. Baseball season's been going for about 10 days. And before that, there was spring training. 
where some players try to make the team, but beyond that, the guys who know they're going to make the team, they're getting ready, and they're training. They're getting ready for the season. And the statistics of spring training don't really matter that much. What matters, though, is that they're refining and they're tuning up their skills. And they need to be responsible with that training time so that when the season starts, they're ready to play at their best so that they can succeed, so they can do what they were intended to do. What we do now in life, it's not training, it's not meaningless, but it is preparing us for that much more in eternity when we live and dwell and rule with God. So God's gifted you now. What you do now absolutely matters. But you're also training for eternity. Maybe in terms of what you'll do forever, but also in the sense that you are cultivating a hunger and a taste for the things of God that will expand your capacity for enjoying him forever. Um, think about if you, uh, the things you pursue are money and things you pursue are power and things of that nature and then you don't cultivate a capacity for loving God here, you're going to go to eternity with a shrunken capacity for enjoying God. So we need to get about God's business because when we do, that shapes us for eternity. Now, this isn't the end of the parable, unfortunately. There's one more surprise. The last thing is we're surprised by accountability. Surprised by accountability. Many in our culture, both broadly and within the church, like to think of God like an indulgent grandparent. Nothing against grandparents. I understand that's part of your job. It's a way to get your kids back um, for all they hassled you. I get it. But, But this kind of thinking about God can... this idea that God doesn't hold anyone accountable can lead to some unwelcome surprises. This perspective of God is a false expectation that needs to be laid down. Let's keep reading the parable, verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. Not a good start. He starts off disobedient. He didn't make a profit. Uh, Sorry for all the sports analogies today, but instead of playing to win like he was commanded, make a profit, he played not to lose. I'm just not going to lose this so I don't get in trouble. That's a bad start, but it's going to get worse. Verse 21. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. And what this shows is that this guy does not know the master. He's generous enough to take two guys who took a few months' wages and turned it into a profit to not just say, good job, not a pat on the back. He gave them cities. These guys went from servants to governors or, or you know, leading regional areas. <clears throat> and, and this seems hard, the way Jesus, what he says and then the way Jesus responds or the, the king responds. We need to remember that this is the context um, that the servant has been functioning with God's stuff. It's not like, hey, he said, go take your own money and risk your own money, and then if you don't come through with that, then you're really going to be in trouble. No, he said, here, I'm giving this to you. Go do something with it. Go turn a profit with it. The king has been generous. It's the king's money he's playing with, or not, in his case. The king is generous. This is not, this is a stewardship issue, and that's where this guy falls down. But even if the servant's blaming the king, For who he is, it's still no excuse. The king, I think, for the sake of argument, says, okay, if all this is true about me, he at least could have put it in the bank. Look at verses 22 and 23. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I would have collected it with interest? Putting the money away in a cloth was considered irresponsible. For whatever reason, it was considered better 
to bury it in the ground. I've never had that conversation with anyone. Do you bury your money or do you put it in a sock? But, but in, in the ancient world, it was like it's better to bury it in your backyard. And so the, this guy, is, it, these things meant something in that context. And the idea is that this guy wasn't scared. He wasn't timid. He wasn't as much as, I mean, when I first read it, I thought, well, he's being pretty hard on this guy who's just kind of, you know, he's just kind of timid. But it's not the issue at all. This guy is absolutely irresponsible is the problem that he's been given a gift and he doesn't even protect it well. And he wasn't even supposed to protect it in the first place. He was supposed to turn a profit with it. So, what's, so he's been given these blessings. This guy doesn't use it. So what's God going to do with these blessings since they're refused by this servant? That's what's happened. He's refused the gift. Well, he's going to give them to someone who will use them well. Verses 24 to 26. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. See, it's not him taking away his allowance. We need to be clear on that, because it seems like it's, oh man, he has nothing, and now he's got really nothing. That was God's gift to him, that he squandered. <coughs> you think God's going to just sit on his gifts, that he's going to let that happen? No, he's going to give it to someone else, so that what he wants to see done will be done. He's going to give it to someone who use it. <coughs> We're getting close. I hope I can make it here. Now, before we wrap this up, there's some debate on this issue. Specifically, who is this servant? Is he a believer who loses his reward, kind of like 1 Corinthians 3 picture? Um, you can read 1 Corinthians 3 to get that background. Or is he just someone who kind of looks like a servant, like maybe a Judas who hangs around, but when it comes down to it, he, he doesn't come through. Um, he's not real. He's just playing the part. Good question, important question, but I've got a better question. Why do we focus on that? I mean, do you really want someone to say, I wonder if Ron is just a totally faithful or uh, unfaithful steward, or he's a Judas? Like, Ron doesn't want that. None of us want that. Let's raise the bar a little higher. Let's say, what kind of servant am I going to be? Am I going to be one that, that invests what God's given me and I, I re- it comes a tenfold return or a fivefold return or whatever? We don't want people living, wondering where we stand. Not that they should anyways. I mean, I get the internal, eternal implications, but let's set the bar a little higher and get to the king's business. One more verse for the parable. Remember those citizens who didn't want the king to rule. They come back to the story, and it's not pretty. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. That's harsh. Um, we're kind of stunned with the brutality of that. But again, in the culture, that's what kings did to their opponents. And so it's, it's, it's parables. You know, They work off those common illustrations. But the reality behind this is, is just as heavy as what it says. Accountability isn't just for those who Jesus has given gifts to. He's the king. He'll return. And every person will give an account to how they responded to the king, whether we've received him or not. So before we close, I want to address that, because God's heart is that you would be united with him, that you would enjoy his blessings, that you would rule and reign with him in eternity. But it's not an automatic and so if that's a decision you want to make, if that's something that God is moving in your heart, there's some basic steps to respond and step into that relationship. First, start by understanding that your existence and the blessings in your life, every single one of them is a gift from God. 
And the fact that we don't recognize that is offensive to him. Because the, he gives the blessing, the blessing and the relationship are intended to go together. And so shunning God's gift in that relationship, that's sin. And we need to admit that that's where we are, that we are sinners. Now for some people, the word sinner comes up as a negative connotation. That's good, it should. It's definitely negative. But it might be negative in the wrong way. It's just not that you do bad stuff. You might be the nicest person in the world. But sin is, is ultimately and foundationally about being separated from God. It's about when the king comes that we do not receive him with arms wide open. And so that state deserves judgment because unless we are receiving the king, unless we are welcoming the king, we're, we're counted as rebels. And so thankfully, before the, the son went away to receive his kingdom, he went to the cross and he died in our place so that he rece- received the punishment of rebels in our place so that we could be with him in his kingdom eternally. He died on the cross to pay for your sin. But it's more than that. He rose again. He's a king who wants a relationship with us, a friendship. He says, well done, my good servant. He wants us to be with him, to rule and to reign. It's a relationship, not just some cosmic transaction dealing with sin. And the parable doesn't speak to this much. The parable's pretty hard. But God loves you. Deeply, deeply loves you. He sent his son to the cross so that he could be with you. This is serious. It, it, it's, it's a relationship that he's pursuing, a relationship where you are about his work absolutely, but his love for you is deep, and you need to understand that wherever you are, whether you are a, a long-time church-going Pharisee who thinks that you are in good with God because you do the right stuff. No, it's not because you do the right stuff. He loves you deeply because of who he is and how he created you. And whether you are the worst sinner and you can't believe this place has not fallen in on you yet, He loves you deeply and he wants a relationship with you and he wants to transform you into a person that glorifies him. And if that's a relationship that you want to enter into today, I want you to pray with me. I want everyone to bow their heads if you would. And if if you want to step into this relationship with Christ for the first time this morning, I encourage you to pray along with me. And most of you are believers here and there is someone on your mind who you want to pray this prayer. And during this time, please lift them up and ask that God would move in their hearts. So pray with me if this is your heart's prayer. God, I know I've done my own thing. I've lived my own life without you. And that's sin that deserves judgment. Yet you sent your son to take judgment in my place at the cross. Thank you that he died and that he rose again and I receive the gift of forgiveness. And I want to live faithfully with you and for you from here on out. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, please come tell us after service because we want to help you. You've started a journey. And we want to help you on on that journey. The crowd following Jesus at this time in his ministry had great expectations and he had to do two things at once. He had to temper those expectations saying it's not going to be like you think but it's going to be far better and far bigger. And so he had to temper them and stoke them at the same time. It wouldn't be as soon as they expected but it was going to be great. And when they laid their expectations aside and as we lay ours we see that God has amazing things for us. Responsibility and then after that even more responsibility. And so we want to live well. We want to take the gift he's given us and live well so that when he comes, we can rejoice and we need not fear some unwelcome surprises of accountability. So Takeshi, would you lead us in our time of prayer? Uh, Let's uh, first pray. Father God, you're king and you have given us everything that we have. Opportunities today, 
Today is the gift. Loved ones, work, place to go, sleep, place to work, place to worship, place to uh, fellowship. Thank you for the ability that you have given us. Those are all gifts, and we are responsible for that. Help us live this life according to your will. Help us to live our life to the end until the time that we stand before you. Thank you for the reminder, and thank you for the invitation. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we will continue to pray uh, because uh, we will move into garden prayer. But uh, right before that, I would like to uh, give you a sh very short report. I came back from Japan uh, last Sunday, and uh, I also visited the uh, uh, northern part of Japan uh, where um, earthquake and tsunami hit. And also, I didn't get close to it, but went through uh, Fukushima where um, nuclear uh, plant uh, has been uh, comp uh, creating a complicated issue. One of the pastor's uh, um, church building in his home is right next to the uh, plant, and he hasn't gone back, and entire church is uh, uh, is moving like exile. And what you, uh, I will not show you, but most of the, uh, the picture that you've seen uh, uh, through uh, newspaper, uh, TV or uh, website, that is uh, exactly what that is, even four weeks after. I was there three weeks after, and this is the scene, and over the co coastal area, over 300 miles, nonstop, look like this, and uh, homes and trees and possessions, everything's everywhere destroyed. Uh, some churches are completely destroyed. And uh, people are hopeless, and people are uh, devastated situation in the uh, um, uh, evacuation uh, places and camps and schools. And uh, or even while I was there, earthquake nonstop, two or three, you can feel the earthquake. Each time uh, earthquake happens, all the people were shaken. And this is one of the church planters' house. First uh, floor is all gone and. And uh, the bicycle that I'm standing right by, uh, that's not uh, their bicycle. Somebody's bike, bicycle uh, traveled through and ended up in uh, his house. And his house possession, including piano, is gone somewhere and can't find it. So this is the situation. And uh, you will see the, uh, this massive power of tsunami. But this power is nothing to... Our God. God is greater than this tsunami. And tsunami can take away all the uh, position, all the homes and places, but cannot take away love of Jesus Christ. And that's why uh, uh, I would like to, you to continue to pray. And you, uh, churches there, even though they're victims them, themselves, they're standing up and serving the community and serving each other. Uh, Baptists helping EV Free, EV Free helping uh, independent uh, Pentecostal churches. Everybody's helping everybody. And uh, the shoveling the uh, dirt out of the homes, uh, cleaning out the uh, church building, basically 
just flat foundation, but cleaning up so that uh, rebuilding can happen. And even today, uh, there are teams going out and they are sleeping on the floor. And I also uh, slept in on it on the uh, kitchen floor of a church uh, while I was visiting there and ta people take turns and serving and delivering foods and cleaning up the community. And this is a time that God allowed this to happen uh, because I think God wants to show his love and power over this disaster. And Pastor Yoshida is down there uh, smiling and he's a, a Sendai Evangelical Free uh, Church pastor he was uh, he started this church in 1995 he had, he was from tokyo area he had no idea that this disaster would happen god knew and god called him to start a brand new church in this area 